Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise and join today. Today, my guest is Dorothy Enriquez. Dorothy is the CEO and Principal Consultant with the Elevate Collective, which is a learning and leadership development firm that helps close the skills gap at every level of an organization. Before going full-time with Elevate, Dorothy spent a number of years at Molson Coors in learning and development. She also had training roles at Applied Medical, Veterinary Pet Insurance, and Higher Right. Dorothy was an instructor at Cal State Fullerton, was publisher and editor-in-chief of Dot Magazine, and was a member of the Forbes Coaches Council. She has a bachelor's degree in communication and a master's degree in human communication. She lives in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Dorothy, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Good. I'm excited to get to know you a bit since this was uh, an arranged interview, which is always kind of fun and a bit different than my interviewing the people that I've kind of known over the years. So tell our audience about Elevate Collective. Sure. So the Elevate Collective is a premier learning and leadership development firm. So primarily we work with corporations and nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And then we also do spend some time working with small businesses to really help them optimize their leaders and help the leaders that are there answer the call on Remarkable Leaders, which is to produce another leader who can produce another leader. And so really we do that through cohort style experiences and diversity, equity, inclusion, engagement experiences to really help the organization create this culture experience, which really leads to engagement and why people stay and people finding meaning in the work that they do. What are some of the specific areas that you work with them on? So on the leadership development side, what I find with most organizations is that they want to primarily focus on leaders in place. And what that means is they don't necessarily want to put in as much time and effort in emerging leaders, but the leaders who are already there, especially leaders who sit in the middle, because the leaders in the middle are the ones who really ignite the strategies that get propelled down from the top. And so essentially, you're not working with new leaders, you're working with experienced leaders. And so you're curating advanced leader experiences because you know they're not starting from scratch, they're starting from experience. So really figuring out, well, what are the initiatives? Where is the culture currently? And what's that vision? What's that five-year plan or that long-range plan look like? So that we know how to help these leaders who've been leading for a while cultivate a more meaningful leadership practice and giving them those soft skills, because that's really what it is, that introspective look, increasing the self-awareness and self-efficacy. But how do we do that through this interactive experiential activation that says, okay, these are the skills that I have. 
what am I going to do next? What do the courageous possibilities look like? So mm-hmm. that's where we often end up spending quite a bit of our time. So what does an experiential program look like then? Yeah, that's a great question. So what that looks like is number one, it's custom. And so to say like every organization over the next six to nine months that they're going through this cohort style experience is going to have these classes. It doesn't work like that because it just depends on where is that organization? Where are the leaders and where are they trying to go? And so the customization really depends on that. And so it could be that we're doing a lot of coursework around understanding your internal dialogue because that impacts how you're showing up. Or we're doing content and courses around your confidence and self-efficacy because that's what's slowing you down. If Mm. you don't feel like you're adding value and you don't feel like you're valuable, that is absolutely going to impact how you lead. But for us to say, we need to work on innovation, but you don't feel like you're valuable. You don't feel like you're adding value. We need to train up quite a bit. And so it could vary. Sometimes it is understanding the difference between being a leader and being a manager. Sometimes it is navigating the fact that a lot of times people are trying to cope with the leadership transition. I went from being your peer and now I'm your boss and we both applied for this position or all of us applied and I'm the one who got it. Well, it's hard for me to do these other things over here if I'm still navigating the fact that I've just transitioned into this higher level role that I'm trying to ensure that I have the competence and the skill set to execute, even though there's going to be a transition. Mm -hmm. And so with each organization, depending on where the leaders are, then that's going to really determine like, well, what exactly is this going to look like? But essentially what we're wanting is a transformation that goes beyond the experience. So most cohort style experiences are anywhere from six to nine months. But in order to make that impactful, not only do you need to do stuff in the program, like during the session, but you also need transition activities that you are doing outside of the session, quote unquote, in the real world, on the job, igniting it and pressure testing it, finding out what's working, what's not, but also you need coaching so that that anchoring and sustainability can last beyond the program. And what about the diversity program that you do? So with the diversity, equity, inclusion side, we create activations in 90-day increments. Part of that is because sometimes I find that in this landscape, organizations want to do this work, but then they start doing the work. They realize it can be hard and challenging, and then sometimes they need to take a break or they need to take a second to get the teams together, or they realize they need to recalibrate. Maybe they Mm -hmm. said to everyone, this is what you're doing, but they didn't necessarily think about the impact it would have on the culture to draw that line in the sand and say, this is what we're doing. And so sometimes I think with those efforts, it requires constant recalibration of the humans that are there because often they're being asked to do something that they've never had to do before. They're being asked to step out of their comfort zone and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that's a really big pickup. Because if you look at the evolution of diversity, equity, inclusion, depending on how old you are and how long you've been working, you remember when there was just a D. Mm. You might remember when there was nothing, right? And then the D got implemented because somebody did something wrong. 
a man said something wrong to a woman, somebody touched a black girl's hair, somebody made some sort of advance to somebody else, or there wasn't a ramp to get in. What if somebody has a wheelchair? So then now we got to do diversity training and sensitivity training and workplace civility because something bad happened. But then we also probably, depending on how long you've been working, remember when there was a shift of everyone just needs to go through diversity training once a year so that we could check the box. Mm -hmm. And so there's just been this evolution. But post George Floyd, post 2020, there's been a lot of changes in this space. But even leading up to that, There were a lot of changes organizationally that started infusing inclusion. And we started to see this in commercials. Even when you would fly on airlines, you started seeing inclusion in who is sharing the messages about how to be safe on a plane. It used to never be like that. We've seen these subtle changes over the years, but it has been like a big, almost wrecking ball in a sense post 2020. But depending, you might remember terms like policeman and fireman. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard those terms in years. And that's because there've been all these changes over the years. And so there has been this shift. But now in this landscape, people are essentially being called to the carpet more. They're being held far more accountable than they ever have been. It's challenging work. It can be done, But that really requires a strong leader that's willing to draw a line in the sand. And some organizations pick it up, put it down, pick it up, put it down. But what I have seen through the work that we do here at Elevate is that the organizations who really are committed to doing this deep work, they're constantly renewing for the next experience and saying, you know what, this is just going to become part of the culture. This is going to become part of the fabric of who we are. how we think and how we do things. And ostensibly, you have an option. You can get on the bus and sit in the right seat, or you can get off and find some place that's going to be a little bit more flexible than we're willing to be because we believe that this work is important. So you started doing this back in 2016. What led you to found the Elevate Collective? Yeah. So I went to a leadership retreat. I thought it was just a retreat. And then I realized it was a nine-month program. Okay. A cohort style experience. But basically, I went through the African American Leadership Program in Milwaukee. And during the retreat, I feel like I was being given permission, permission to be awesome, permission to do scary things, permission to have confidence in myself, even if I was going to walk down a path that hadn't been walked down before. I think sometimes we just want so badly, especially as women or people of color, to walk down a path that is paved. So that we know like, okay, that I'm going in the right direction. I see that there's roads and signs and lights. This is great. But that retreat just gave me permission to go down the path that hasn't been walked down before. And I walked out of that retreat and walked into my boss's office the following Monday, because I think it was like Friday to Sunday. So I walked into my boss's office like, you know, I'm gonna quit this job, right? She's like, oh my God go do your work. Yes, I'm, I know you're going to quit, but just go get your work done. But I thought to myself, I could probably do this. And what was happening is that I would be at work gifting my leadership and igniting my gifts. And people would always be telling me like, you can do this for yourself. And I'm like, no, I can't. I can't do this for myself. Like who would pay me to do this? Mind you, not even considering the fact that I'm already doing it and someone's already paying me. 
but forget about that. Let's not use logic in this particular situation. So basically that retreat is what made me start really thinking about, huh, maybe I could do this for myself. What would that look like? What would that sound like? And initially it did not sound like the Elevate Collective. So when I first kicked off with this firm, we rebranded to the Elevate Collective, but originally we were known as the communication strategist. So it was team of one, a one woman show, essentially a boutique firm, if you will. And then in 2021, we rebranded to the Elevate Collective. It's a much a cooler name. Yes. Tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) So it's interesting to me. I mean, you worked in learning and development. Mm-hmm. You went to this retreat. So you're used to seeing people kind of go through these aha moments, right? Yeah. Uh, and experience that sort of the light going on. Right. But it took you ha- going to one of these programs for that light to go on for you, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. Tell me about it. I'm always watching people ignite, like, and have these aha moments, these epiphanies, and going through that program and really being immersed for days. It was such a huge catalyst to be in that space. I'd never been in a space with a bunch of Black leaders in one spot who are all doing amazing things. Mm. And then sitting back in my chair like, well, what am I doing here? And then coming out of it, realizing I'm supposed to be here. I belong in every room that I'm sitting in. But it didn't start out that way. That was a journey. What's the business look like today in terms of used We, but you also said it started as a one woman show. So where are you with it today? Yes. So now I have an internal team of about seven people. And then we have our experts who are client facing. And so it is myself. So I'm the founder and principal consultant. And then we've got Dr. Lacey C. Robbins. She is our neuroscientist leadership expert extraordinaire. And she also has a background in diversity, equity, inclusion, wielding multiple certifications, and of course, a terminal degree. We have Dr. Essence Johnson. She is an optometrist by trade, but also a certified diversity, equity, inclusion practitioner. We have Celeste Cuffey, who is a leadership expert extraordinaire, also certified in DEI, also wielding multiple additional certifications like DISC, and not just individuals, but being able to use all the aspects and attributes of DISC, as well as the five elements of building a cohesive team. So being able to infuse those different things in any type of work that we need to be able to do. And then our secret weapon is our in-house data scientist, Tamika Smith. And so what she's able to do is ignite 180s, 360s, predictive analytics, where we'd be able to go into an organization and say, you know, based on looking at all your data, 10% about of your female leaders are going to quit at X level, or mm-hmm. your people of color aren't as engaged as everyone else. And being able to go in and see that information and use that as a tool to say, how do we want to ignite the programming or being able to create leadership dashboards or diversity, equity, inclusion dashboards. So anytime that there's a project that requires more than just Dorothy, I call in the experts so that we can essentially, Dr. Lacey's example was that we're like a transformer, right? I could be Bumblebee all by myself and do a great job, 
And that is what happens the majority of the time. But when we need to call in the big dogs, we become Optimus Prime. (laughs) And together, like Captain Planet, our powers unite. And so when it's a big enough project, we're we're going all over the superpower. There it is. We are like the superheroes of leadership development and diversity, equity, inclusion. (laughs) And so we're able to come together and do different programs for different clients and really make sure that they're getting what they need and finding who's going to be the best ad. There are things that each of them can do that I cannot and vice versa. And so who's going to be the best ad to the program? So what are your goals for the company over the next few years? You know, I think that I want us to be able to scale. I think from a business standpoint, business is kind of like up and down, right? Like it's a little bit roller coaster like. One thing that I've learned in meeting with some experts that help businesses scale and really catapult to that next level is that most business owners over-index on one side or the other. They either over-index on sales and marketing and under-index on operations and fulfillment, or they over-index on operations and fulfillment and then under-index on sales and marketing. So my favorite is operations and fulfillment. And so when you find yourself in this space where you want to scale and you're running into hiccups and hangups, that's one of the first places that you should look. Like, where am I having a preference so that you can start to tip the scale in that other direction. So that's kind of what we're doing right now. I prefer the operations and fulfillment side. Every time I have the desire to do something more on that end, I do the exact opposite of what I want to do, right? So I'm like, oh, I want a project manager. No, you don't. That is not what you need. Stop. Go get yourself a fractional CMO. And Mm -hmm. that's what I did. And so now for me, over the next year, part of it, is about leveling it out so that the scale is not so uneven. And honestly, I've been running this firm since officially, like I got the idea in 2016 in December and launched in January, 2017. I didn't even have that language, you know, like I didn't know that I was over indexing in one side versus the other. And so last year and this year, we spent a lot of time operationalizing the firm, which we'll continue to do. But for the next year, the journey is really going to be focused on swinging the pendulum in my least favorite direction out of necessity in order to, as you continue to grow a business, create more awareness, garner more accolades, and of course, attract more clientele, you want it to be more even so that you're not taking a bicycle to a motorcycle race and then feeling like you just need bigger wheels when you need to change how you operate. And so I would say over the next year or two, changing how we operate and creating more of that balance. And then also continuing on this awareness phase, right? Creating this opportunity for Elevate to become more of a household name. And so those are kind of some of the things that we're focusing on right now. And my personal focus too is really around culture. Internally, there's about seven of us, but I do believe it's important to start thinking about culture before you add in the humans and then always pressure testing and checking in because I'm the CEO. I built the culture. I don't know what it's like to live in it. You know, as a leadership development firm, if we're going to be helping other cultures build their culture and ignite their culture and create meaningful cultures and purposeful cultures, we have to be doing that same work in-house 
We cannot be like the cobbler where everybody else's shoes are great and their kids' shoes never get fixed. I want us to be able to live out loud internally the same things that we do externally. So that's kind of what we're focusing on for the next couple of years. That's a pretty rich agenda. How do you like being an entrepreneur overall? Overall, I like it. I do feel like you probably have to have a light dusting of crazy to do it just because I do think it's really unpredictable. But I do think the world of work is unpredictable too. I think that this space works better for me. It's stressful at times, but for whatever reason, it feels like a stress that I can manage. I was more stressed out when I had a corporate job. I feel like I work way, way more hours than I work now. And it just seems like there is more of a rhythm. I think the ups are up and the downs are really down. But even when I'm in a down space, I always ask myself, well, do you want to get a job? And the answer is always no, no, we're not doing that. We're just going to ride this wave. And like nothing lasts forever, if you will. So, you know, if it went down, it's going to go back up. But I do think you have to have some level of capacity to deal with ambiguity and uncertainty. Like if you absolutely have to know what's going on at all times, this landscape, I think would make that individual like miserable because it just would present a huge headache because you're learning on the fly, you're building the plane as you're flying it. And there are things that just kind of happen out of nowhere. And so are you capable of rolling with the punches? Are you willing to invest in yourself to increase your business acumen? Because I think a lot of times when we start businesses, it's because we're good at the thing. We're good at building homes or good at doing makeup or good at making clothes or good at delivering a service. That doesn't mean we know how to run a business. That is a different skill set that we would need to bolster up over time as we're continuing to master our craft. And so you're going to fail a lot. And I think the transformation comes in how you talk about your failure. How are you talking about these failures? How are you talking about these near misses? And that is where you'll see your transformation in your area to really soar and rise. And you're your biggest competition. Well, I think relative to a a corporate job, certainly, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, like you have to make a lot of decisions, right? And you have to, all the (laughs) things that you walk into work and take for granted, having a computer, having a desk, having the lights go on, right? Yeah. Getting your paycheck, all of those things, like you have to make all those things happen. And and certainly my experience, and this is for me is a very part-time thing, but there's just a million little things you think, wow, I've really had to go down the rabbit hole. I've really had to go down the rabbit hole of search engine optimization, right? I had yeah. no idea how deep that rabbit hole was. Right. You know, and that's just one example, but there's just so many things like that that you end up by necessity. You don't, may not be an expert, but you at least have to become conversant, right? You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And that's why I always have the same nail color. Because <laughs> I don't want to make another decision. Yeah, I'm done deciding. And I will say on some level when I do have a second and I'm like, what do I miss about having a job? Sometimes it's, I wish somebody would just tell me what to do, especially if I don't know what to do in the cases where I know what to do. No, I don't want anybody in my ear about that. I think I can figure out. But when I feel stuck, who is going to tell me what to do? And there's like some level of confidence that it's going to work. 
Because yeah. when I had a job, I would be told what to do. And I'd say 80, 90% of the time it would work. Whatever I was told to do would work and it would work out. I don't feel like I spent my career being told to do things and like everything fell through the cracks and flopped and it just didn't seem that way. And right. so when it's hard and I can't figure it out, I wish someone would tell me what to do. And then I also, of course, miss like a company covering your health care or like a good portion of it. Of course, and like yeah. that, you're always going to get paid. Like when you're running a business until you get it to the point where it can run without you, you have essentially created another job for yourself. Mm -hmm. However, if you have a regular job and you get sick or you go on vacation, you're still getting paid. And so when you start working for yourself, if you're sick and you don't have some sort of automated something, you're not getting paid. Or if you are on vacation, same thing. And so if you haven't figured out some sort of way to create a sleep coin system, then that's that next iteration. Like, how are you going to set up this business where for X amount of time throughout every year, it can run without you? And yeah. that's the journey. If it can never run without you, you have a job. You also haven't really scaled it. Exactly. So when you feel stuck, who do you go to for advice? So I almost always have a coach. So like currently I have an operations coach okay. because- I realized last year that was part of the issue and it was already an issue. I didn't know what the issue was. And so this is the thing about people telling you what to do because somebody could have told me three years ago, this is an operations issue, right? I didn't know that. I had to figure that out on my own. And so I spent a lot of time last year operationalizing the firm slowly because what I was noticing is that we would be constantly recreating the wheel. There would be a lot of like waiting. So there's different like operational things that can get in your way. And so waiting is an operational hazard. And a lot of the waiting is because of me. Like I end up being the roadblock, if you will. Yep. Like, oh, we can't move forward until Dorothy approves this, or we can't yep. do this until Dorothy looks at it. In making operations a priority, we have cut down time significantly, which saves us money because we're not having to redo work. We're not having to wait. And like, you're just sitting there waiting and the clock is ticking. And I took an operations class last year as well. And I have operations coach because this is something that if you're trying to double your business, expand, you have to have processes. And when you don't and things fall apart, your first thought is, I'm going to fire everybody. This team just doesn't know how to team. Like they just don't know how to do their work. And what I always say is, okay, if you feel like firing everybody, don't. Before you get mad at the people, look at the process. And then I realized we don't have any processes. That's part of the problem. Mm. A lot of our problems stem from us having to like shoot from the hip, fly by the seat of our pants. And then it does not work. It flops horribly. And then, of course, who's salty and singed and crispy? Me. So we had to start putting processes in place because the thought is, all right, well, what if you have 10 six-figure clients at once? Hmm. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? It's a good problem to have. If you're ready for it, if you're ready for it. And so in thinking about like, well, what if... What do we need to have in place so this this runs more like a well-oiled machine? Because ultimately, 
it's a good problem to have if you're ready for it. If you're not ready, something like that seems like a good surprise. There are no good surprises in business. People mm. be like, well, what if you're on Oprah? That's a great surprise. It's not unless you're ready for what's going to happen when you go on Oprah. Are you ready for the influx of whatever service delivery product? And if you're not and you can't handle it, this could literally tank you. Are you waiting for that call, by the way? Listen, I can't wait to go hang out with Oprah, but I also want to make sure I'm ready (laughs) when it's time to go hang out with Oprah. Look, that's why I'm getting it together now, because if you stay ready, then you don't have to get ready because you're prepared. You're anticipating greatness around the bend. And so doing the things that you know to do so that you're as prepared as you can be, because opportunity presents itself when you are doing what you need to do, you're preparing. So that means you're anticipating an amazing opportunity just around the corner. Yeah. There is certainly a certain amount of preparing for the positive surprise, right? Being ready for the positive surprise. And it's an investment. It's a leap of faith sometimes of your time or your money or whatever. And sometimes you just have to do it. Absolutely. What did you envision yourself doing when you were a kid growing up? I'm sure it wasn't learning and development necessarily, but what did you think you would be doing? I feel like I thought I would do all kinds of things. However, when I asked my parents, what did you think I was going to be? They were like, we thought you were going to be a teacher. Okay. Because I was always forcing my sister to play school. So I would say that they're right. I'm a teacher. And so- I think that I thought, I didn't necessarily think that I was going to grow up and be a teacher. I wanted, look, me as a little kid, I was like, well, I want to grow up and I hope I'm pretty and I want to carry a briefcase. I want to look important and dress nice. Oh, and I want to talk. I want to be able to talk a lot because I always got in trouble for talking in school. So whatever job it is, if I could just talk a lot and kind of just be paid to talk, that'd be great. That was literally the extent of it. And so- it worked. That is what I do. I talk a lot. I get paid to talk and paid to think. So that sounds on par with like what my 10-year-old self was envisioning. But I don't think I ever thought that I'd be working for myself. Like, I don't think that that was the thought because my parents were like, you know, go to school, get your degrees and get a great job. And that's what I did. And so I don't think that running a business was the thought. I mean, it's not like I was raised where they're like, hey, so one day you're going to run the place or you're Mm going to own the place. So funny enough, I guess if I would have been playing pretend and imagining, I always worked for someone, but I have a five-year-old daughter who's never worked for anybody. Even when she plays pretend, she owns everything. (laughs) She literally works for no one. She's never had a job a day in her life. And so she owns a restaurant that has a drive-through and accepts carry-out and pickup orders. Okay. She owns a boutique hotel. Who told her about boutique hotels? I don't know. And she also owns a grocery store that is vertically integrated with her restaurant. She's five. (laughs) Sounds like she's off to a good start. Tell me about it. (laughs) So I think it's just a difference in Mind you, I've never asked her like, well, do you want to be when you grow up? Do you want to get a job? I've never said anything. So when she's playing pretend, that is how she plays. So I'm going to be extremely curious to see what she actually ends up doing as an adult. Well, for most of us, we have no idea what we want to do. And we sort of find our way gradually as the years go. Yeah. 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 
Let, let's go back and talk a little bit about some of the things that you, that you work with your clients on. You talked earlier about manager versus leader. I'm curious to hear your definition of what does that transition really mean going from being a manager to being a leader? I mean, I would say off the top of my head, right? If you're a manager and you solely see yourself as a manager, you're primarily responsible for performance. And you're primarily responsible for performance as it aligns and attaches to the strategic initiatives for the year or for the quarter. And so your goal is to ensure that whatever that goal is, that it gets done and that you leverage the skills of your people to do it, the end. Now, there are some additional elements with being a manager, right? Like, are the people effective? Are they efficient? If they have obstacles, are you moving them out of the way? Are you the obstacle? Do they have what they need to do their work? Do they actually have the skills? Can they GWC? Do they get it? They want it. They can do it. And do they understand how, based on whatever particular role they hold, how that actually ties into the initiative and how it ties into your goals and the overarching goal of the company, which is the bottom line, which is to make money. That's a manager. A leader, which you can be a manager and a leader at the same time, Sure. but a leader is someone who understands that first, I must lead myself. If I cannot do that, I can't lead anybody else. Leadership is influence. So if I'm a leader, there's a couple things that I will be doing that don't necessarily match exactly what a manager is doing. So number one, if I'm a leader, I have vision. And because I have vision of what's possible in the near future or the distant future, I am able to ignite that vision and paint such a vivid picture that you, person who is following me can see yourself in the vision. You can see it, hear it, taste it, feel it because of how I'm presenting and how I'm igniting what's possible if you and I collaborate in a meaningful, effective, and impactful way. As a leader, I'm the one who creates this area of opportunity for courageous possibility and inspiration. And so that also means that I can inspire you through how I show up, how I coach, how I guide, how I mentor, and just how you get to watch me do what I do. I can inspire you to learn more, do more, and be more. Also, if I'm a leader, my role is to also help you see that you're a leader. Everybody's Mm -hmm. a leader. Even if you don't have direct reports, you are a leader because leadership is influence. So you're required to lead from every seat you sit in. So even if I'm the leader, I have enough competence, capacity, understanding, I'm coherent and congruent enough where there may be times that I understand I need to follow you. And I'm also here to serve you. I'm also here to cultivate my leadership practice and help you do the same. These are not overlapping things like it would be with a manager. This is different for sure. You know, maybe it's an overly simplified view of it, but management is ultimately more about the task and leadership is absolutely about the people. You know, I think about it, I'm curious to get your view that, you know, the people who are managers versus the people who are leaders Mm -hmm. with the managers, it's like, yes, I'm responsible for other people, but there's still a bit of, I look up in the organization and there's still a bit of us, them, right? Whereas a leader, it's like us is them, right? You know, it's, it's now, it's now we. And so there's things like that. That's not the only one, but there's just sort of those mindset shifts that I think are are part of that transition. And some people get it right away and other people really struggle with it. Absolutely. Because I think that it's so easy in an organization to be wherever you are, right? Let's pretend you're not at the top. So you could be close to it in the middle, at the bottom, whatever the case may be. 
And it is so easy from that vantage point to say, if only they would. If they, then I could. If yeah. they, then I would. And so something that I try to lift up for the, the consideration of the clients that I work with is you are the they and you're mm-hmm. the ones that you've been waiting for. You are them. So this is not if they would. No, this is you. You are they. Yeah. You're the ones you've been waiting for. No one's coming to save you. And yeah. so if you peer through it from that perspective and that lens, what can you do to shift culture? What can you do to find meaning, the highest level of happiness in the work that you do day to day? And what can you do to shift how you experience the world of work? Because you are a leader, which means that you also will be shifting how other people experience the world of work. Mm -hmm. What can you do? I know sometimes people are like, I can't do anything because they. And so then if you want to remain stuck, you can but each of us is one decision away from changing everything. And so do I want to live as if my life is happening to me or do I want to live and show up as if I'm happening to my life? But this is a choice that we have to make on a regular and consistent basis. Yeah, it's very true. I know you have a goal of increasing the number of women in the C-suite. You put a particular percentage on it in your your podcast one sheet, 2%. I'm curious how you're going to measure that and sort of what you're doing to help increase the number of women who are moving up the ladder into the C-suite. So one of the things about how we curate programs at Elevate, that's one of the differentiators. We are always taking into account how women ascend into powerful positions. And we're always looking at how women wield, maintain, and share power because we do it differently. One of the things in how we create courses accounts for that. When we're working with clients and especially on the diversity, equity, inclusion side, looking at job descriptions, being able to say, okay, well, based on this, women aren't going to apply. And the way that you have this framed, women aren't going to apply. So when women see a job description and there's 10 things, we're like, if we don't have all 10, for most of us, we're not applying. And so how do you curate job descriptions that take that into account. And so even when we are developing courseware, understanding how women show up and how women ascend into leadership roles is particularly important. When courses are being created, they're being created leveraging adult learning theory. How do adults learn? What do adults need? What makes this sticky for grownups? However, we wanna add that extra layer of what happens when women are thrust into the forefront as far as what women need. Of course, we can all be here, right? But what do women need as they are ascending into leadership roles, as they are giving themselves permission to be great and to be impactful? What does that look like? What does that sound like? What does that feel like? And how can we take that into consideration in everything that we do? And in the event that we have opportunity to have access to the data, then we can also say, well, based on how your organization is set up, you don't have a ton of women. And based on what these predictive analytics could be showing, you're going to experience a notable drop-off in female representation. What are you going to do about it? Right? And so doing these different things, I think over time will create a shift. I mean, it's an ambitious vision, but it's something that I always want to be working towards because women are over half the population, but that's not the case in the C-suite at all. 
No, it's not. It's not balanced. Yeah. So what are some of the things that you advise your corporate clients to do to address that? I mean, well, part of it is actually being willing to have the conversation. Some organizations don't want to talk about it, but other organizations are open. There are lots of organizations that actually have some programming around catapulting women into right roles. But what I have noticed and what we've talked about with some companies is, you know, second generation bias, the likability bias, the impact between confidence and competence. Mm -hmm. And what the research shows is that while women are perceived as more competent than men in various roles, they're not perceived as confident as the men who hold similar roles And I think part of that stems from like the likability bias. Like if you're not likable, if you're too masculine, if you're too feminine, there's all of these things that you have to navigate and combat as women in leadership. But being able to have courseware that allows you to have those conversations and allows you to address that and allows you to get the skills to figure out how am I going to show up and what am I going to do and understanding like what you're experiencing. Because sometimes we could be experiencing something the same way how I needed to fix operations in my business, but I didn't know what the problem was. Right. The same way that women could be experiencing something at work, notice it, not have words for it and not necessarily know what to do about it because We might not even recognize what's going on. And so what organizations have done over the last few years, instead of having a token woman, they now have tokens so that they can say, well, we did it. There's not just one woman, there's two. But really being able to do that deep work and see, is this something that an organization wants to do? Because by making it a more equal representation would require them to ignite the E in DEI and Mm -hmm. to make it equitable. But a lot of times, part of what makes that work challenging is this idea of privilege. So what privilege says, if I have a privilege and you don't, that means I have to give up something for you to have it too. And we live in a society that is based on a variety of different kinds of privilege. But privilege says, if I've got a privilege and you don't, I'll lose something if we're the same. And so that's very challenging to navigate in an organizational setting, especially when it's organizations that have been around for eons. To have to make that shift feels very risky. So how do we just at least start having the conversations and start exploring the impact, even if it's just on a smaller scale? What can people do individually to help bring more gender equity to the C-suite? I think that they can be talking about it for sure. I think part of it is... You know, when you think about conversations that are happening in corporate today, some of these conversations we were not having 20 years ago, let alone 40 years ago. And so part of it, I think, is having conversations. Part of it is being able to create the brave space where the conversations can be had. I think some of it is acknowledging the shortfall, right? And so as organizations look at their data, they might say like, it's 50-50, right? 50% of women are in management, 50% of men are in management, but then taking a deeper look at the data and asking themselves, where, where are the women in management? So depending on the size of the organization, the structure, is it hierarchical? Is it flat? Is it regional? Is it geographical? Is it network? That will determine how many layers there are. But if there are 
four layers in manager, two layers in director, two layers in VP, and all of the women, for the most part, sit in layers one and two in the manager. Yes, right. you have women in management roles, but they are in the lowest level roles, right? Yeah. Where are we yeah. seeing a drop off and why? And are we willing to invest? It's not a cost. It's an investment. Are we willing to invest in the gap that we're noticing? If there is a majority drop off at level three in manager, how do we create a leadership pipeline? How do we create succession planning? And how do we create the skills necessary in the people we already have in-house to make sure that they're set up for success so that they can get to the level four and be adequately prepared for level one and two at the director role? And how do we get them the coaching and the development that they need to succeed in this culture and elevate to that VP level? What does that look and sound like? That's an investment. Right. But all the research shows that when women are in these powerful positions, maintaining, wielding, and sharing power, it impacts the bottom line. It makes companies way more money when women are in roles. Yeah. So there's an economic incentive to do it. I think there's a psychological incentive not to do it for a lot of people. It comes back to your point about the people who are in the privileged position, they have to give something up to make room for somebody else. And some people are really good about that. And some people really struggle with it. Right. And it speaks to just, we have cultivated, I think, intentionally a scarcity mindset, right? Where if there's a pie and there's 10 of us, we can't all possibly be able to get a piece. We can't. Only five of us can have a piece. The rest of you go find a new pie somewhere else. And so if we have this scarcity consciousness versus a liberatory consciousness that there's more than enough, and if we did run out, another pie would come and we'd still have more than enough. There's more than enough, but that's not really what we subscribe to culturally. The U.S. is a very individualistic culture. It's every person for themselves. And so it is very hard to imagine that there's enough for everybody. How? There can't possibly be. And so I think that we take that everywhere that we go. And so it's no surprise that it has navigated into the world of work where for many of us, that's where we spend the majority of our time. So the idea that we should just shift consciousness across the board, it's a big pickup. It has to be a choice. And I think some companies currently are making that very choice. Those are the companies we love working with. Those organizations that aren't just trying to check the box because, you know, a woman got upset and she didn't get a promotion. Now we got to bring in a consultant. I'd rather be able to be a strategic partner with those organizations that say, you know what? This is an amazing opportunity. We want to do this work. We've been trying to do it on our own. But when we think about what it is that we do, this is not our area of expertise. (laughs) Let's bring in somebody who has the time, the expertise, the bandwidth. This is what they eat, breathe, and sleep all day so that Mm. we can continue to go do what we do, whatever that is. We can do this important deep work over here at the same time. All right. Last question. What advice would you give if you had to give one or two quick pieces of advice to our audience about how to make the most of their careers? What would they be? I think if you want to make the most of your career, I would encourage you to become a high performer and not just a high achiever. I spent forever as a high achiever and it's just not the same. So if you wanna be a high performer as you go through your day, right? You wanna find meaning in the work that you do. So as you go through your day, ask yourself, how can I be courageous? How can I operate from a place of necessity? Like who needs me 
to understand why this is important. How can I operate from a place of productivity, right? I do think sometimes we pretend to be busy at work and we could be getting after it and we're not, but how can I operate from this place of productivity? How can I operate from this place of taking care of the talent? You are the talent. You're gifting your leadership to this company. And so being a high performer, that means that you can achieve high results consistently over the long haul. Whereas being a high achiever is you want to do well, you're going to put your best foot forward, but you're inconsistent. But your heart posture is that I want to do well. I want to do good work. High performer, you're delivering consistently over the long haul, but you're asking yourself those really important questions regularly. And I think that the other thing that I would say is that if you're... 70% of Americans like hate their job. They're not engaged. And if you fall into that category, I would encourage you to ask yourself the question, what if I went and pursued what I would really love to be doing? Even if that meant a pay cut for a little bit, even if that meant switching industries, switching sectors, what would that courageous possibility be if you trusted yourself and you trusted yourself in the process? Because life's too short for you to hate work. We got to work because we got to make money. So what would you do if you could trust you and trust you in the process? What would that look like so that you could find meaning and flourish? You shouldn't just be surviving at work. That is just no fun. You should thrive. Yeah. So what would that look like? Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, that Gallup statistic that gets trucked out all the time, you know, that only 30% of people are engaged at work. And oh, by the way, that's like better than every other country on the planet. You just think like, what a tragedy. Yeah, because we spend so much time at work. We got to find a way to take the risk, right? Yeah. The hard thing. You can do hard things. It's hard sure. and you can do hard things. But what would it look like if you trusted yourself to go do the thing that you know you love? All right. Well, that's a good way to end. This has been fun. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks for doing it. Good to hear what you're doing. And obviously you're focusing on important topics, just, I mean, turning people into leaders and helping bring more to the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Those are both great areas of focus. So it's important stuff that you're doing. And thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I want to thank Dorothy for doing the show with me today to discuss the Elevate Collective, her work with clients, a little bit about her own career journey, and a number of other things that we covered in the course of the 45 or 50 minutes. If you're ready to take control of your career, be courageous, as she said at the very end of it, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. Basic membership is free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter. Follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.